0: All right, well, good morning. Yeah, I did not actually know it was the first day of spring, even though it feels like it, so this is awesome. Um, yeah, so we're looking at this, these two passages because they're, they're really kind of, they're really interesting when you see them and read them in the context of what else is going on in Luke at this part of the Gospel of Luke. We're in the middle of this massive chunk that has a lot of parables, Jesus teaching. But these are the only two instances where Jesus actually is, is like performing a miracle and healing somebody. And it also has this curious refrain that you might have noticed when these two are read side by side like, like Bryce did, where it says, your faith has made you well. And this stood out for a couple reasons to me, and, and, and this is where we're gonna really focus on, like, what does that mean? What does it mean for... Your faith to make you well. And it stood out because for two reasons. One, we normally think about our faith being a response to grace, right? I thought grace would make us well. Like, Jesus is the one that performed the miracle. He's the one that healed, right? So what is he saying in this when when he says your faith has made you well? And then secondly, what does well mean? (laughs) Like, during the passing of peace, you probably ask, how are you doing? I'm doing maybe you said, I'm doing well. What did, you know, what did you mean by well? And how does that overlap or not with the way that Jesus is talking about this? Because we live in a, in a culture that, that largely, not that we have succeeded very well in doing this in the last couple of years, but we largely orient our lives around the avoidance of pain. Right? We try to protect and mitigate ourselves. Or we try to protect ourselves and mitigate risk. We have names for this, like, you know, in a non-religious sense, we call this the, you know, the, the wellness culture. But even within uh, you, know, I'm not going to call this within Christianity, I'm going to say that this is a Christian-themed um, ideology, the health and wealth gospel, which is neither healthy nor gospel. What in the world is being meant here? So to get to understanding that refrain that Jesus says in both of these, um, we're going to look at two themes before jumping into that and answering that question more directly because this context is so so important. The first theme is that desperation is lonely. Desperation is lonely. In chapter 17 in the first one with the with the 10 lepers, it says that they stood At a distance, they were standing a pretty good way off such that and and far enough that they had to yell and lift up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Right? This was the, uh, if you were wondering, yes, this is the OG social distancing. (sighs) Sorry. Like, you have to make the joke when it's right there and you, anyway. Um, Now, as we talked about with, with other passages in this sermon series, uh, this would have they would have been, you know, ritually unclean. However, the intent of that law was never for the burden of that distancing to be borne by the person who is unclean. Right in the Old Testament, it says that this distance is important. However, it doesn't. It's what is impl- at least implied in the spirit of the law is that the healthy would bear the burden of that distance, not the unhealthy. Right? In chapter 18, with the, the blind man, you have it cl- like he's hearing and overhearing a crowd as they're passing him by. They're passing him by. They're not including him, they're not inviting him. They are passing by. Apparently, not being able to see means that you can't be seen, also. When you're blind or when you are invisible to people in this way, you might overhear people talking about it and, and they're not talking to you. They're, they're just kind of, they know your, your, your wallpaper. And he heard, he has to have heard these stories and rumors about Jesus because at this point in the gospel of Luke, Jesus is making quite a stir. And so he, when he realizes that that Jesus is here, he is desperate. He is desperate and it says he cries out he yells. And over the course of this um, podcast that Bryce and I do, we had the opportunity to interview uh, Dr. Diane Langberg, and if you don't know who she is, she's, a, she's written uh, a couple of books, including one called Redeeming Power, and she is a, a the authoritative voice on spiritual abuse, especially in the church she works with and has decades of experience Um, caring for people who have been abused and who are trying to recover and heal from trauma. And one of the questions that I was really, like, intrigued and just wanted to ask her and got the opportunity to was something I and other pastor friends of mine have noticed, which is that those who have actually experienced abuse firsthand are often some of the most courageous and quickly trusting people I've ever met it is beautiful and remarkable. And it's actually those who, you know, maybe they are very aware of the dynamics of abuse but have not experienced it directly or don't know anybody personally who are often the slowest to trust. And I asked, like, why is that? And I, I just, <laughs> I really thought it was a brilliant question um, because I'm like, this should be opposite, Right? And she just doesn't even skip a beat. She's basically waiting for me to finish asking the question, explaining, which I thought was like a really nuanced thing. She said, no, it makes total sense. They're hungry. When you've experienced abuse, you're hungry and desperate for connection. You're desperate to have the kind of healthy trust because you've experienced so much of the unhealthy kind that you will do anything in order to to get it, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. And those who were, with, who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Shut up. Your needs are not important. But he cried out all the more Son of David, have mercy on me. Friends, we don't have to wait until we're desperate. We don't have to wait until we're desperate. We don't have to wait until we're at this point. And I, I say that hoping and, and wanting to encourage you that this is actually good news and also hard news in the sense that we live in a time and a place where we aren't desperate that often. There are many people across the world now and always who are very much in desperate places, but if, I'm, if we're honest for those of us in, a, in, this, in this room, comparatively, we experience that so much less often. Because we have not had to, we have not been in a place, like we, because we have been bowling with bumpers in life in many ways, those muscles are anemic. So I would encourage you, when, like ask, ask, try to remember one of those times when you felt incredibly finite and, and mortal and... And maybe really vulnerable. What did you do with that? Did you anesthetize and just kind of numb your way through it and try to just get through it? Did you murmur meekly? Or did you shout for mercy all the louder because you don't want that to pass you by? It's lonely. Desperation is lonely. But it doesn't have to be because Jesus is the one who gives that mercy, and he's not going to pass us by. And this is our second theme, which is is that Christ's healing is holistic. In verse uh, 40 of chapter 18, it says, Jesus stopped and commanded, this is referring to the blind man, commanded him to be brought to him, and when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Notice that he tells the same crowd that was saying, will you just kind of pipe down and stop causing a ruckus? We're trying to listen to this guy teach. You, yeah, we know you need mercy. You're blind. It's not going to change, okay? That crowd, Jesus says, no, bring him in. You go and do it. They, he, he tells them to bring in this man into the center of their community, and then while everybody else is watching, lifts him up and, and heals him while everyone is waiting to see what happens. Jesus restores his sight and his humanity and his place in community. He reversed the social standing that had been thrust upon him and then re-knit him back into the community uh, fabric. You see, Jesus is deep, deeply concerned with our salvation, but he's also concerned with the community and the social fabric that is God's people because salvation is more than fire insurance and healing is more than physical. And so when he heals him and he re-knits him into this community, what he is doing is he is restoring his place in the body of Christ in the same way that for us as, a, as the church, we are that re-knit community. We are that kingdom community. And, and this, is, this is more significant than I think we, we normally give it credit for, because I think too often we, tre- we treat church like as a means to an end. You know, this is how I grow in my faith in Jesus until, you know, I meet him in heaven or until he returns. But what we, what we don't do give enough attention to is that the way that Jesus and the way that Scripture talks about the church is as both means and end. That this isn't just a vehicle for the growth of faith, it is also the destination of those whom Jesus has saved and redeemed. And we get to be a part of that family as we saw with Nora's baptism this morning. That's beautiful. With the 10 lepers in chapter 17, we see a similar pattern, but it kind of happens a little differently, right? In verse 14, it says this, go and, he says, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And they went, and, and as they went, they were cleansed. As they went, they were cleansed. Two really important things about this. One, what he's basically saying is go and live and operate as if you are cured before you are cured. We normally get this, we normally think this is the opposite, right? We're like waiting until we feel better about something and then we will respond and then we will react. But what Jesus knows is something that we don't, that we often neglect, which is that obedience actually draws out faith. Because until we actively trust, like you're walking out on a bridge with an active trust versus trusting from a kind of cognitive intellectual belief that this bridge will hold your weight, it is actually then that you experience the feeling of trust. But it requires stepping into it. And so if you're waiting to pray until you feel like it, you're only going to pray until you're desperate. If you wait to read your Bible until you feel like it, you're only going to pray, you're only going to read your Bible when you're desperate. If you wait to love your neighbor until you feel like it, you actually just never will. <laughs> right Obedience in hope and trust that God will produce that faith within us is not legalism. It's actually just it's leaning into God's love and allow, and, and inviting him to show up for you. The second aspect of this is so interesting is when, when Jesus says, go to the priests, there's a social dynamic at play here that, that makes us really not appreciate this, right? It says, kind of like most of the way through, that this was actually a Samaritan. And so this would have been a very strange thing to say to a Samaritan because there was this controversy, right? Samaritans believed that the, uh, the, the temple that they worshipped at was the right temple, which was built during the split between the, Israel became Israel and Judah. But, the, but Jews thought that their temple in Jerusalem was the one that, where God's presence was, and that's where, you know, that's where we worshipped. And so for Jesus to say, go to the priest without specifying, as he's traveling down Galilee and Samaria, intentionally ambiguous, they would have heard that from a rabbi and assumed he was saying, go to the temple in Jerusalem which the Samaritans were not welcome at. You see, the point of this is that for a Jewish rabbi to heal an outcast, it would have been amazing. It would have been, I think the technical, technical term is bonkers. Okay? But to be included and invited and told to go worship in the temple of Israel would have been a restoration unto and within the people of God that was would have been mind-blowing for the Samaritan because he would have been recognizable as a Samaritan. Jesus would have known this and that he didn't say anything, treated him actually as far more human than he expected. Once again, Jesus is not interested just in physical healing. He is interested in restoration. And this is getting to the question that we started with, right? How did faith make them well? Quite simply, that faith is the fruit of Jesus' redemptive kindness, right? We can see this in in chapter 17 when it says, uh, in verse 19, he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Remember that they were already cured when he says this. What Jesus is trying to imply and suggest here is that there is a different kind of healing that has just happened uniquely with the Samaritan who returned. You see, Jesus cares about physical wellness and social restoration. But for how long? Until the next thing? And then what? This is a weird illustration to use, but and I don't know if anybody else has, has ever, like, has this kind of memory when you were growing up, but um, I remember when I first realized, I, I was in, like, second grade, so maybe, maybe I was a little sheltered, I don't know, um, I remember that moment when I realized, like, everyone will die someday, like, when you age to that, like, whether it's just, just from old age or an accident or something, like, I just thought that that was an exception, And I remember, yeah, there was some like very mild fear and a little bit of sadness, but mostly I just remember being really confused. Like I remember how alien and foreign it was. And I know that this is not a scientific conclusion, but when Jesus encourages us to have a childlike faith, part of what I'm convinced he is referring to is not being ruined by the norms of living in a fallen world. And that actually, my internal reaction of, wow, death is so foreign and weird and and alien, I don't understand it, that that's actually the way it's supposed to be. If you've been here for, you know, at least a few of these sermons in this series, you know then that the word that we translate as well here literally is the same word that we translate as saved. It's sozo. And so when Jesus is saying your faith has made you well, he's saying that 10 lepers were healed, but one was also made new. See, this is the implication of redemptive kindness that's hinted at that probably don't catch in the very first verse that Bryce read that when it says, on the way to Jerusalem, that part. On the way to Jerusalem. When Luke writes this, he's, he's trying to get us to remember back in chapter nine, verse 51, when it says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem and it's that signaled a shift in the way that Jesus was doing ministry at the time. In other words, he was setting his face toward the cross. That the time had come to start that journey very specifically and intentionally there. And so, what? <laughs> it was this focused determination to render death alien and foreign again. It was, it was Jesus anticipating that my childlike reaction to become the norm. You see, we live in this world that is ruined by the fall and sometimes it feels like it's ruled by death. Right? <laughs> growing up with a stable world order, that was the norm for me growing up and most anyone Gen X or younger. But maybe that's the exception. Maybe maybe our familiarity with the term supply chain is actually normal. And maybe we were just experiencing a, a period of, of, of blessing and, and rare stability, but we, it feels like we live in this world where maybe inflation is actually normal. Maybe world wars are more normal than we gave him credit for. I say all this because like the blind man, life shouts for mercy while death tries to shut it up and silence it. But life will not be silenced. Life will not be shut up. And as with the crowd, Jesus also commandeers death in order to accomplish the thing it was trying, the the opposite of the thing it was trying to do. (laughs) That's how Jesus wins is not by, (laughs) it is an overcoming that is not a a fighting against, but a, a beautiful atonement for. This is wellness. <laughs> this is the wellness that the Samaritans' faith procured. It is a reversal of death and decay to a redemptive norm that Jesus first promised and preached in the synagogue, which we covered in the first week of this series, that the blind would regain their sight, that the lame would walk, the captives would be set free. This is the last, I'll end with this, before we jump into the Q&A, but when when we realize that that gift is what's on offer, that it's not just Jesus giving us an easier life, that it's not just this cultural Christianity, when it's actually life eternal (laughs) and flourishing holistically, when we realize that, then the previous pursuits, even good ones, pale in comparison. The nine other lepers didn't get it. They continued life as normal. It would have they, they they responded in the way that I would say is the equivalent of cultural Christianity. They used Jesus for a better or an easier life, but they are missing out on this everlasting life in following Jesus. This redemptive faith. He says that faith has made them well because faith recognizes that in giving the gift. Jesus has commandeered you. That, that life will never be normal or easy again, except that life eternal is now the norm in Christ. And that's good. Even if life is, is, is far more difficult, right? that's good because the redemptive kindness of Jesus actually wants far more for you than an easy life. Than temp- and 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 temporary or physical healing, for your circumstances to get worked out, for you to get that job, for you and your spouse to finally stop arguing about the same thing over and over again. And no, I don't have a personal connection with that example. Because Jesus is saying, I'm not here to restore the status quo. I'm here to make all things new. It starts with you. Let me end with reading this quote that is like, literally, I could have probably started with this, quote, and, and skipped the entire sermon, but then you would have not felt like you're getting your money's worth, and since this is, you get what you pay for, and it's free, welcome. Anyway, I should stop and just read this quote, and then we're going to do a Q&A. From C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he describes what it's like to, to be surprised by Jesus making you new, and it goes differently than you expect, he says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand that he, what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. Nobody can identify with this, I know. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. That applies to both us individually and the church as a whole. That's what it means to be the bride and body of Christ. So we have at least one question so far here. How do we wrestle with the idea that God allowed for so much brokenness on earth so that he himself would be glorified? Doesn't that seem egotistical? <laughs> Man, please, with the softballs. Um, you know, I, I actually, I, both bef- right before I became a Christian and right after I became a Christian, I really wrestled with this myself because if, if, like, if God saves you so that you worship him, Why in the world, like, brokenness aside, just the whole, like, what it means to have a relationship with him, why in, like, isn't that arrogant? Isn't that self-centered? And kind of what I have learned, and what was actually really helpful for me is, um, it wasn't arrogant, but yes, it was self-centered. It was very much God-centered. And the difference between us wanting somebody to worship and God wanting somebody to worship him is that when it's for... When we want somebody to worship us, it's for our good. When God wants us to worship him, it's for our good. God doesn't need our worship. We are made for it. And like a fish in water, if we're not worshiping, if we're on dry land, it's actually suffocating when we worship something else. So when we're talking about a holy and perfect God, that's a very different story uh, around that invitation than when you or I are inviting somebody to worship us? Great question. One of the things I love about communion especially is that in this, we have a picture of this redemptive kindness. It's a kindness that doesn't just address our physical needs, which it does because the fact that this is physical bread and wine is actually... This is beautiful, and why we know that, that Christianity is not some kind of Gnostic pie in the sky spirituality that has nothing to do with the brokenness of the world and creation itself. But one of the most scorching criticisms that Paul had for the church in the New Testament was when the church used the Lord's table to reinforce social hierarchies that were not of the kingdom. And what the reason why that was so profoundly frustrating for Paul and a, a real problem for the church was because it denied the fullness of Jesus' redemptive work on the cross. <laughs> so when we take this, this is, as I've said before, this is not Brad's table. This isn't the table's table. This is the Lord's table. And around it, he makes us new. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, This is my body. It is broken for you. Likewise, he took the wine and he said, This is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins. You are not just forgiven and your slate wiped clean. You are restored unto the Imago Dei, the image of God that you were made in. And yet, the brokenness and the pain and everything you've gone through in this life is still somehow more fully beautiful as a result of it. That's really good news. And if you, like, to come up here is to respond to that good news. It is to express gratitude, not just thankfulness. Thankfulness is a feeling. Gratitude is an action. It's it's an act of faith. And in so doing, we join the leper And the blind man at the wedding feast of the lamb. That's really good news. And that's the invitation. Whenever you're ready, as Darren's leading this in worship, I invite you to come up. And as soon as there are 10 or 12 around each table, we'll hand out the elements and we'll take them together as God's covenant restored family. And we'll celebrate. That's what this is. This is a celebration. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are... <laughs> it's amazing, Lord, actually, that we come up to you and we ask you for things that maybe be once but aren't always needs and you don't just give us what we need. You give us far more abundantly than anything we could ask or think. Lord, you've given us yourself and Lord, I pray that you would you would help us to procure that redemption, to lay hold and claim what you have offered us, and that that would have, that that would rejuvenate us from the inside out. Lord, bring your healing, bring your restoration. Help us to rest in your redemption. We pray all this in your name. Amen.